You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. Thank you all for joining us and listening today. I'm here as always with Ryan Goldfarb and I am John Errico. We have a great episode today. We're going to be exploring the concept of starting new short-term rentals, so Airbnbs, et cetera, in new markets. So what to consider, what we're considering, um, and how you can go about it yourself if that's something that you're interested in doing. So why don't we, Ryan, um, just dive right into it. I th- This topic is kind of interesting to us because as listeners of this podcast know, uh, Ryan and I have a number of short-term rentals throughout New Jersey primarily concentrated right now in Atlantic City. And we went into that market mostly based on my individual prior experience in that market. I would say that we did not do a ton of you know research or particular thought of, uh, about going into the market, except that I was involved in short-term rentals that were successful in the past. Um, given our success there, um, we're hoping to expand to other markets. And so now we're trying to think about how would we decide on those markets, um, what's important to us. So Ryan, I think as a very high level point, when we talked about this a couple of days ago, when we were, were first broaching the topic, I thought that you had a great uh, dichotomy, a way of kind of thinking about um, why people go to, to Airbnbs. So maybe we can start with that. Sure. Yeah. So when we had talked about this the other day, I was, what I was trying to convey was my interpretation of what drives demand in certain markets. And I, I think there are, or I, I think this is universally applicable to Airbnbs and short-term rentals. Um, I look at two different drivers of demand. One is sort of asset-based demand, and the second is location-based demand. So, to so one me, is driven by the asset, one is driven by the location. Right. Yeah. So to me, the location-based demand would be... Um, having a rental in a beach town or having a rental near a ski resort or having a rental near a big water park uh, like Atlantic city. Um, <laughs> Soon to be. <laughs> yeah. So, so that type of demand is you, you're when you're chasing that type of demand, you're saying I'm investing in a particular area. And by the way, it doesn't have to be specifically tourism driven. It could be um, doing something near New York city because you're going to cater to business travelers and, um, you know, there are a lot of hotels that take that approach. Um, and to me, location-based demand is more agnostic to what it is that you're actually buying and focusing much more so on where it is that you are buying that asset. Yeah, um, I think I was thinking of another way to say it is that regardless of what you have there, people will go there. So you could have an amazing, you know, eight-bedroom house in an amazing location in that you know, city or whatever it is, or you could have a one bedroom apartment in a rundown area, people, there will still be demand for, for those assets. Right. And I, and I think your occupancy and your pricing there is going to be primarily a function of the supply and demand of that local market. Um, and I would contrast all of this with what I'm calling asset based demand, which is um, the demand that comes from having a, a cool or unique or for some generally amenity-driven reason, um, an attractive 
property. So, regardless of the location. Regardless of the location. So, and to be clear, you can have an approach that is focused on both at, both asset-based demand and location-based demand. Um, but generally, it's going to be you know some. We'll get into that in in. in yeah, the, you can have a cool a cool house in a cool location for sure. And you can have a terrible asset in a terrible location. Um, in most cases, you're going to fall somewhere in between there. So, so just. To, to um, to further discuss the, the asset-based demand a little bit, um, I generally think of that as being either amenity-driven or aesthetics and design-driven. Um, so if you have a house, you know, a, a five-bedroom house that has a pool, a hot tub, a tennis court, a basketball court, and a sick backyard and deck, that is going to appeal to people on the basis of those features, those amenities, um, and that is specific to that asset. People are going to probably chase that rental down no matter where it's located, although there will be location-based factors that will obviously affect the pricing. That asset could do well in many different locations, but it's probably going to do better if that also happens to be located right next to a beach or right next to a mountain. Um, so that's sort of the framework for um, at least one lens through which we're going to be evaluating future STR markets. And I, yeah, I, I and think individual assets within those markets. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really useful way to think about it because if I think back on what we have done, what I've done with short term rentals, or even you know like hospitality space in general, I think that that's really been borne out. You know, I, I have when I started, I had a lot of short term rentals in Union City, which is in Hudson County, kind of directly across the Hudson River from New York, and the stuff that I was renting out was you know not super high quality. It was, uh, you know, like rooms in an old apartment that was maybe, you know, renovated kind of in a not very extensive way. And all the demand that I saw was for people coming, they wanted to live there to be in New York, to be near New York. And so in that sense, it was entirely location driven. Like the room itself mattered almost not at all, just that there was a room. Well, one thing I want to point out though, is I, I think that when you do either one of, like if you go, want to be asset focused, you still focus a little bit on location. If you want to be location focused, you still focus a little bit on the demand. So in the in the context of what you're talking about with the Union City, to the extent that you were being purposeful about what you were buying, you were obviously buying in Union City because you wanted to be close to Manhattan. That was your whole underlying thesis. But once you got into the thick of buying stuff, you were also thinking about things from an asset-based perspective in terms of you know, this is a seven-bedroom house or a five-bedroom house. That's going to be more lucrative than buying a three-bedroom house or a two-bedroom house. Yeah, and, and that, that's a great point. And I think that buying in Union City versus Jersey City versus Manhattan, uh, which all have kind of the same location appeal, the reason why we bought in Union City was because the pricing in Union City was a lot more attractive. So in that case, I was very concerned about the location specifically of Union City versus other places because I was able to kind of choose. I, I think another way of saying it is that, you know, if you're... Um, it, for, from an economic perspective, if you're saying I want to buy, I, I'm I'm really seeking out a certain location. Um, the price, the, the amount that you'll make at that location, as you said before, is driven by kind of the global demand for that location. So your sensitivity towards you know your basis almost for these properties might be a little bit higher because you're thinking, well, you know the I can't really drive. I'm not going to really drive demand by 
how great my asset is. I mean, I might to some extent, but the demand is really there for the location. So sure, if I have a really nice asset in a great location, that'll do better than a not as nice asset in a great location. But presumably, um, you can't really drive, you're not going to be really driving that much demand to the location itself because its location is what it is. Whereas the opposite extreme being that in a, in a completely, you know, if you have a place in the middle of nowhere, you are creating the demand. You're driving all the, people are not going to go to that place except to go to your specific place because your place is so great. So perhaps in that case, you could be a little bit more agnostic about the basis or the cost because you're thinking, well, I'm driving that demand. So like every dollar I spend or put in or whatever might actually correlate in some way to increased revenue. Um, so we, we've touched, I think this was a little bit of a, an aside on, on demand drivers for STRs. Um, I think the importance of having that conversation is that that is the large driving force behind what your average nightly rates are going to look like what your occupancy is going to look like. And it's ultimately going to trickle down to every other metric that is going to determine whether a property is profitable or not. Um, having said all of that, I think it's worth talking about some of the other, maybe more qualitative factors that go into evaluating a new STR market. And then maybe down the line, we can talk a little bit about some of the logistics involved with entering a new market. Um, I think largely borne out by some of the successes and failures we've had in other markets that we've operated in. Um, so I, I think I would say maybe the first thing that I would, that I would look to when looking at a new market is what the regulatory landscape looks like. Um, this is something we've talked about at length. We've done a fairly recent episode about regulations and short-term rentals. Um, but I think generally speaking, it's helpful to understand certainly at a state level, at a county level, um, but probably most importantly at the municipality level, what do short-term regulations look like in the area where you're looking? Um, sometimes this can be tough because if you're, if you're looking at a new market, you may not know exactly what town you want to be in, but you might know you want to be in a general region that could consist of five or 10 or 40 different towns. Um, and in that context, you're going to have to probably wait until you hone in on an actual property and then evaluate what the regulations look like in that municipality itself. Yeah, I think one of the frustrating things that we found, and I think still is the case, and we touched on this in a prior episode about it, is the lack of regulation in a lot of these places. So I think if you consider it as a spectrum, right, there are places where um, it is doing short-term rentals is just completely impermissible. Um, and nowadays, to the extent that, to the extent that, STR regulations exist. It seems like they are most prevalent in places that have either a lot of tourism demand and um, so, you know, stands to reason that it's just much more relevant or uh, larger cities where there's just so much yeah. housing activity and there's enough volume, even if it's a rel relatively small subset of the housing stock. That yeah, it I would say that to the, I would say to the extent that there are re regulations, probably most regulations are those that are restricting or limiting the usage, the, the ability to do STRs. I think there are fewer municipalities in general or just, you know, jurisdictions that have legislation that uh, is there to kind of promote STRs, um, perhaps except for very, very touristy areas 
where their whole economy is driven by tourism. But even then, there's sometimes some pushback from, you know, maybe existing hotel players or other hospitality providers. But, you know, so that's the spectrum of that. The, the opposite end of it or, or you know, the, the completely other side of it is that you get places where there is no, no regulation at all, um, uh, which could mean that... STRs are permitted by by lack of them being prohibited, or it could mean that the city could interpret other regulations on their books as prohibiting STRs, like full stop. For example, we've seen places where um, it's required to get a new certificate of occupancy before every occupant, regardless if that occupant is there for a week or a day or a year. Um, and that kind of can function as a prohibition on doing short-term rentals because you're not going to get a new CO before, you know, a person checks in for the weekend or whatever. Um, other times cities will interpret, you know, zoning laws to say, oh, well, if you if your use is kind of a hotel use, um, that's not permitted in the zoning, which has a residential, um, and of course there's ambiguity about what that is. We've, you know, talked about this already, but I think, you know, going to like research these things, that itself is a challenge because if you wanted to find out like, well, I'm interested in buying, doing an STR in this place in upstate New York, can I do it in upstate New York? Um, I would say probably, you know, 60% of the time, New York might be a weird example because they have overarching laws, but you know, let's say New Jersey, um, maybe 70% of the time there's nothing. You, You won't find a single news report, press release, whatever. If you go into the ordinances, you won't find a single thing. And then the other 30% of the time, you can actually find something relevant, good or bad. And it's probably not to your benefit to call up City Hall and ask them these questions because I think in a lot of people's minds, the last thing they want to do is put these things on those people's radar. Yeah. Um, yeah maybe so, those people isn't the right thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, the elected officials. The elected officials. Are of, doing a great job. Um yeah, so I think that's like a gating question. So if you go to a municipality or a place and you can't do STRs there, like, I mean, in, in my book, the inquiry ends. If you go to a municipality where you can do STRs there, like it says in the law that it's permitted, you can keep going in the path. If there's an, as a municipality or whatever that there's no regulation on it, I think might be worthy of further thought but I would go in with caution because it's easily conceivable that the city could say, no, we don't want that. And, and then ban them later on after you've bought, you know, a portfolio of STRs, whatever you want to do. So that's, uh, I, I guess a flip side of it too, is that, you know, Ryan, we've been talking a little bit about the future of STRs. I know there's some people in the STR community that talk about this. Um, the line between an STR and sort of a boutique hotel, I think, is a little bit blurry. Um, and I, I don't mean that in, um, you know, practical usage. I mean that more so in a land use perspective. So, you know, it's not inconceivable for me to think about going to a municipality where the short-term rental usage of a house or an apartment is not permitted. However, um, it is possible to buy or construct or retrofit or whatever a property to be a hotel and obtain that zoning you know the 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 ability to do that because it's permitted via zoning uh, as a right in the zone where that asset is located so that's kind of another wrinkle to it i suppose yeah we've we've i mean i don't want to get too into the weeds on regulation but it's interesting to think about sort of like maybe maybe the future of this in some respects is not necessarily 
redefining short-term rentals or creating a new classification of that, but maybe it's more so about reimagining what it is to be a hotel or what it is to be a motel and maybe the, mm. the definitions um, that municipalities will use to govern those will change a little bit so that something that looks like a single-family home or a two-family home could maybe more easily be classified as a hotel or motel right. and, and then be subject to governance accordingly. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the awkwardness of, of the regulatory scene right now. But yeah, in any case, I would say that's an important gating step uh, right. that you brought up, Ryan. Anyway, back to the topic at hand. Um, so that's regulation. Certainly worthwhile to to put a little thought into that as you're exploring a new market. Um, secondly, this kind of speaks to the introductory conversation around demand, but understanding what the demand drivers are in that market is certainly going to be, um, that's certainly going to have an impact on what your approach is as an investor. So uh, again, we talked about asset-based versus location-based. When you're looking at a market, you're largely going to be trying to understand the location-based demand. So what that would look like is obviously, are there are there big tourism draws to that area like skiing or beaches or lakes or water parks or amusement parks or, um, you know, thriving downtown, right. whatever it may be. It can take many different shapes and forms. Um, but beyond that, it could be um, sort of what industry is relevant there. Right. I would even add to, you know, is the demand seasonal? Right. Um, yeah, or... so I think that's a certainly a, a, a takeaway from... Like th there's a whole list of things. Once you identify what the demand is, I think there's like a series of questions that you ask based on what the answer to that question is. Right. That helps guide what the right. what the path forward looks like. So for our inquiry, I think you know our STRs, short-term rentals in Atlantic City, are predominantly driven by uh, the fact that you can go to Atlantic City and go gambling at the casinos, and also that you can go to the beach. You know, kind of like the draws of of any Jersey Shore town that also has gambling, which is only Atlantic City. Uh, but, and that demand is, I would say, quite seasonal. Um, you know, so our demand really peaks probably in June or July. Um, and then every kind of month further away from that month is less. And, you know, probably like the, the doldrums, like the worst months for us are like February and October, November, something like that. Because in November, December, we get some peaks for the holidays. But October is, you know, everyone's back in school. February is... January is pretty slow. January, February is like the dead of winter, which is where we are right now. Um, but I think, you know, obviously, um, it goes without saying that if you have a place in a ski town, that is the opposite case. Probably June, July is dead and January, February is extremely busy. I one one thing I want to point out, though, about understanding demand is I think there's the very obvious uh, conclusions that you might draw, like what you described, um, the way you describe Atlantic City as you know casino town, a beach town. Um, that certainly what it, that certainly is what it is on the on the surface. Um, similarly, for you know Deer Valley or Park City, Utah, you would say, oh, it's a it's a ski town. Um, but I think when you as you do a little bit more research, you may come to find out that there are other um other demand drivers for that area like something i don't think i would have realized when getting into uh, before get, getting into strs in atlantic city was how robust the kind of conference scene is there mm -hmm. um yeah so i'd say like there are conferences shows um things of that nature pretty regularly uh, conventions 
um, pretty regularly. I would say like, yeah, yeah. concerts. Um, I would say there are like multiple events like that each month. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that has a huge impact on demand in the summer because that demand is largely vacation, beach, that kind of thing. But in the off season, I would say that that has, has certainly been a nice wind at our back. Um, because, you know, during, I mean, it's, it's not just weekends, but it's also, it also drives weekday demand. I think another way that I might say it is that I've been surprised at how much demand there is for almost every market that we have been operating in. Um, I think there's more demand in the off-season in Atlantic City than I would have guessed, particularly for larger units. I think that's something we've been finding. Larger meaning more bedrooms. Um, and there's even demand in places like um, New Haven, Connecticut, where we have operated STRs, um, which is sort of unbelievable to me because of the, you know, some of the areas of the city that we operated SDRs in. But, you know, even there, there is demand that isn't, say, necessarily driven by um, by Yale or the universities there. There's demand because there are events happening or things at the hospital or whatever else. Yeah. And I think part of what we've learned from doing Airbnb is that it's the, pl- the platform, Airbnb, Verbo, everything kind of holistically, those platforms are so good at aggregating demand and just distributing it towards wherever there's supply um, that you're never going to be able to figure out exactly or every single thing that is driving people to stay at your places. Yeah. But the more you, the more intention you put behind figuring out what the main drivers are going to be, I think that will help you. That will f- inform some of your decisions down the line, um, both in terms of underwriting, but also in terms of identifying what it is that you want to do with your units to make them most suitable. Um, so yeah. as an example, like despite, I, I would say despite the like recent surge nation, nationwide in remote work, I would say Atlantic city is generally not the type of place that people are going to, to stay for a week to work remotely and, um, just kind of get away from wherever they are regularly. Right. Um, but if our, if our market was the Hudson Valley and we had cabins or bungalows or cottages, things of that nature. Um, that probably isn't something we originally would have accounted for. But if you go into it knowing or with the expectation that that, that may be a driver of demand, then maybe it's as simple as putting a desk in your place that suddenly takes it from being viable for someone to stay for a month in the off season to uh, inviable or mm. the opposite. Right. <laughs> um, and I think the same thing goes for... Um, catering to more family centric travel, um, or catering towards more party going groups. Right. Um, we talked about that with some, some STRs that we were looking at earlier today. Yeah. I I think to your point, understanding demand informs probably the type of asset that you want to buy. Right. So if, if I'm buying an asset in Orlando, I'm probably going to want to buy an asset that can accommodate families, not a studio apartment, because probably there aren't a lot of, you know, individual people or couples that are going to Disney World. It's probably predominantly families. Um, But on the flip side, you know, if I'm um, buying somewhere where I expect there to be primarily like solo travelers, maybe like somewhere remote where people go hiking or something like that, probably that's not catering to families with young kids as much. So it might be more appropriate to buy something that's like, okay, you know, I could understand a couple coming kind of alone without their family to this location. Right. Yeah. I think the significance of understanding demand is first and foremost, it allows you to target 
what it is that you should be buying. And then secondly, once you have identified what you're going to buy or what you already own, you can better design and configure the space to appeal to the, you know, mar- to appeal most closely to what it is that your target demographic wants. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So that was a, that was a quick foray into uh, understanding demand. Um, something else, I, something else I don't think we touched on is, um, or that I wanted to touch on is customer ta- or consumer tastes. So, um, if you are doing something in a very you know, trendy urban market, that the type of asset and the way that you're going to approach a project is very different than if you're doing a, a rustic cottage mm-hmm. in the mountains. Um, and obviously, these types of these types of details might be pretty obvious for some, but uh, I think a lot of people on the surface will look at like for example what we've what we do in Atlantic City if we go to another market that's that's very different our inclination might be to just default to what we've been doing in Atlantic City because it's worked there right. and assume that the same thing will work wherever we're going um and i think it's probably worth taking a step back and thinking a little bit more um high level about what it is that the driving force is behind i don't know we had a little camera trouble but i don't know exactly where we cut off but um you're saying i think it's uh, worth yeah, it, it's worth putting time into taking a step back and realizing that different markets call for different things. Um, and in different markets, people are going to have different tastes. And that may not be because they're different people, but it may mean that when you go to the beach, you expect something very different from when you go to a yeah. retreat in the mountains. Yeah, I could imagine like an extreme example being, you know, like a tiny home off grid, which might be really cool in kind of a remote mountain area. If you were to build a tiny home that didn't have connections to water, sewage, or electrical surfaces and, you know, near the beach in Atlantic City, that probably is not going to appeal to a lot of people. It actually sounds kind of cool, but I don't think that that would be the right play in that uh, area. So uh, in the same way, probably building a, you know, 10-bedroom, 8-bathroom house in a completely remote forest somewhere is not going to be probably the best move. Although awesome. Kind kind of cool, cool. (laughs) but yeah, probably is not going to be appealing to that many people. Yeah. Um, Another thing I wanted to dive into a little bit, which you touched on earlier, was the seasonality of your market. Um, The... I think there are are a number of implications to this, but... And I think... I think we fortunately understood this pretty well when we were going into Atlantic City. Um, But it's easy to sort of underwrite to a certain annualized... So obviously seasonality is going to play a big part in the performance of STRs. Um, the I think it's easy to think about things from an annualized perspective. And I think that's generally, I would say just having been around real estate for a while, my mind is sort of trained now to think about things, particularly rental numbers, rent revenue, as either a monthly or annual figure. And that sort of assumes or implies averages and kind of stable monthly cash flows. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is, I think our Atlantic City stuff is a pretty heightened example of this. Our 12 months worth of rent, of our 12 months worth of rental income, uh, maybe 40% of it comes from July and August, the two biggest months. Uh, and maybe 60 or 70% of it comes from 
like May to May through August, May through September. Um, so if you if you go in and you're underwriting, let's say a hundred thousand dollars a year for your rental, um, for your SDR in a certain market, but you don't understand seasonality, you your expectations or uh, the way that you price and approach your listing can be vastly off in either direction. Um, you know it, whether that means you just kind of price it at a fairly static nightly rate, um, maybe a weekday and weekend rate over the course of the year, or you um, just under overprice it based on the season, you're either going to be, you're probably going to be either leaving a lot of money on the table or um, you're going to be seeing way more vacancy than you otherwise should because you're pricing yourself out of the market for that season. Yeah. And I think all these factors that you just mentioned are factors that would go into, in my mind, selecting a market. So for example, if I don't like a market where I have that huge seasonal variation, um, or if I don't like a market that appeals only to solo travelers or to family travelers, or if I don't like a market um, that is extremely driven by one particular amenity there for whatever reason, those might be reasons why I wouldn't choose that market. Like I think if I were, for example, looking at a place where I thought the main draw was one business, you know, just like I might not be interested in such a place for a long-term rental or whatever, you know, I, I, there, there's so much, would there be so much concern in my mind that that might, that one business might move its offices or change or something like that, that maybe it's not a great short-term rental option. Or, you know, I, th- I don't, I don't know if I would, I don't know if it would be, kind of fitting in what we've done before for appealing if we're looking at a market where the only people that are going to be renting there are retirees or something like that. You know, I don't think that that really fits in kind of with their, you know, the, the brand. And then there are, I think, you know, I think retirees do use Airbnb and there, I think there are markets that appeal to them. I'm thinking of like where I grew up in Florida, but um, you know, I think having STRs there would be, it just would be odd. It would be not with, not within our kind of larger, you know, brand scheme. So those are what we just said, Ryan, I don't know if you have other, other factors in that same capacity, but I think the things that we just said are the factors that we're kind of considering going through our mind to select a market outside of, some more kind of practical logistical factors that, you know, maybe we can touch on shortly, but yeah, I, I think maybe the last thing I was here to, to summarize all of that um, or to add into all of that is um, at the end of the day, despite how we've talked about short-term rentals as sort of their own asset class at the end of the day, it is still real estate. Um, in, a, in a lot of cases, it is still residential real estate. And so it bears, bears mentioning that you should also understand what the real estate market looks like as a whole um, agnostic to short-term rental usage. Yeah. Um, so you might want to think twice, for example, if you know, you could find the most perfect, um, STR opportunity seems like it's going to absolutely kill it from a yield perspective, from a cash flow perspective. Um, but if your underwriting shows that, you know, if you have to pay a million dollars for this house, um, despite really high revenue numbers and cash flow. Um, projections, if there's no other house in that market for above $400,000, you're putting a lot of faith in the short-term rental concept. Um, And with factors like regulatory risk um, and all of the other risk factors and obstacles that one endures going through operating the operations of short-term rentals, um, that's a pretty big bet to take because you're sort of 
you're sort of foregoing any sort of plan. Yeah, I think thinking holistically about short-term rentals as an asset class, I know we, we just did an entire podcast episode on this recently, but you know, one of the biggest concerns, I think, is that short-term rentals are pretty affected by macroeconomic factors that you have no control over. You know, if you're doing a long-term rental, um, people need to live somewhere. It doesn't matter if the economy is doing bad or good. Uh, people are going to live somewhere. Maybe over time, people might move out of a certain area for particularly notable events like we've just gone through and seen that in Manhattan, although now I think things have been improved. But um, with demand for short-term rentals can evaporate kind of immediately if there's some factor. Like Again, I'm thinking of like, say, 9-11 in New York City that completely destroyed the tourism market in New York City for quite some time. Um, so that's just you know, if you're uncomfortable with that kind of like macro risk that you can't control at all, then short-term rentals are are not the best asset class to invest in, I suppose. Um, so I think all of that is a, a good like an analytical framework to think about how to evaluate a market. Um, I guess my my original conception of this conversation was that we were in part going to have a conversation that we are due to have between the two of us about how operationally we would go about entering a new market. Um, so maybe we can kind of shift the second half yeah. of this conversation to cover that topic, um, as this is very topical considering we are yeah. in this position now. So I think for, for Ryan and I, what, what Ryan is touching on a little bit is that all these factors that we just talked about are important. To some extent are gating issues about whether or not we'd even enter a market at all. But other factors that are important to us um, are are you know there are sub sub factors within this larger factor but i think the biggest overarching way to say it is would we be interested in expending our time and money and effort to operate in that market even if the market had all of the the attributes that we want and that we talked about and i think for us that has more recently been something akin to we still want to be able to physically go to these assets maybe not you know on a weekly or monthly basis, but the assets have to be in some sort of reasonable distance of where we live, which is the, the New York City area. I think we kind of said like two hours, something like that. I think, yeah, I think that kind of, kind of feeds in a little bit to our very first point, your very first point, Ryan, about location um, versus asset demand. What we think is that essentially anywhere two hours in any direction from where we live, not the ocean, obviously, but any two-hour you know direction on land, um, there is a lot of demand just driven by the fact that it's two hours driving distance from New York City. So that could be uh, on the ocean, you know, on a beach. It could be on a lake. It could be in a river. It could be in the mountains. It could be in the forest. Whatever, and that's all two hours from where we are. Um, whatever that is, there will be people that are interested in going there just because you're two hours driving distance from New York City. And I think, frankly, the same is true all throughout the Northeast Corridor. So from DC to Boston, if you're two hours anywhere from any of those major cities, Philadelphia, um, in that area, you will have demand. And for us, I think relying on location demand, I think is just as a general concept, presents less risk than relying on an asset. Because even if our assets in that area are not great, we'll still do well. And Atlantic City is a great example of that. Some of our assets in Atlantic City are not the greatest, but those assets still do really well. Our, our nicer assets do better, but we're, we're still performing great on those assets. Right. I, I think for our portfolio and for what we're looking at now, um, I think the 
it's like basically the baseline demand is going to stem from the fact that we are within that two two and a half hour distance of of New York uh, of New York City, and then to the extent that we can, I think we're looking at ways that we can layer on additional location based demand um, mm-hmm. to make it even more appealing, and then on top of that, try to find cool enough assets that um, push some additional asset-based demand on top of the existing location-based demand. So one example of this would be, um, let's say rather like any, so I guess when I think of the the kind of baseline case, it's a random house in a random town that's an hour and 45 minutes from Manhattan and hour and 45 minutes driving distance, but the land itself is ordinary. It's not near any bodies of water. It's not near a mountain. It's not near a beach. Um, it's just there. Um, the next sort of like order of magnitude up would be that same type of property, but in close proximity to a ski resort like Wyndham or Hunter Mountain um, or driving distance to a beach in Atlantic City or Margate or Vendor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say like a, a, a notch above that would be something that is uh, location on like right on the mountains of so ski in, ski out or um, waterfront property along the Jersey Shore, or something lakefront or riverfront, riverfront um, in New York, New Jersey, um, and then there are different sort of gradations within that. Um, so if you take if you take any of those tiers as your starting point for your location-based demand, um, you can kind of take the same approach to the asset-based demand, which would be kind of ordinary house, vanilla, you know, clean but unspectacular three-bedroom, two-bath house. Um, and then kind of spruce that up to be something that's um, similarly practical, but maybe more, a little bit more design forward. Um, then you can layer on some amenities like a house with an indoor, uh, with an outdoor pool, a house with a hot tub, a house with... Well, an indoor pool would be great. <laughs> why not both? <laughs> <laughs> why not both? <laughs> um, uh, you know, movie theater room, things like that. Um, so you can kind of, you can kind of go like, if you think about like this being, this is for... This is maybe the first time we've ever tried to make use of the fact that we're doing video here, but I'm gesturing with my two hands here. So let's say my left hand here is location-based demand, and my right hand here is asset-based demand. You can go from here to here on location-based and from here to here on asset-based. And obviously, as you get each of these levers a little bit higher, you have the makings of a more and more desirable Airbnb. Right. Yeah, and I I think um, another aspect of that conversation for us is looking at the price of the asset. So I think um, all of that is great. You know, we, we could have the the best asset in the best location, which sounds great. But if that, if the asking price for that or the amount that we, the price we can get it for is not uh, relative to what we think we can rent it for, then we're not going to enter that market. So I think that there are a lot of markets on the Jersey Shore that have great, you know, they're within two hours of New York or Philadelphia. Um, They're, you know, their houses right on the ocean, right on the beach, the boardwalk, whatever. They have amazing amenities, but, you know, they're selling for $5 million. And even on a, you know, in a fantastic year, we couldn't approach anything approaching a number that would justify that as an investment. And I think part of it, frankly, is colored by the performance of our existing assets. Um, because for us, the calculation is more, 
you know, there's a there's an opportunity cost to devoting money towards one place versus another. So if we're looking at Atlantic City and we're thinking, well, you know, we can make whatever return on our cash, uh, our own cash or investor cash in Atlantic City, and we look somewhere else and we think, well, we can make half of that or a third of that or a tenth of that, why would we ever bother with that other market? We should just go to Atlantic City. Now, there are other reasons why we might want to enter those other markets. It could be that we want to just diversify our assets. It could be that we... Um, want to build an infrastructure in that market and we think that we can kind of achieve economies of scale, you know, reducing expenses and maybe driving up uh, revenue if we can by entering the market. Um, but as a general statement, I think given that we know how to operate in one market in a large way, um, using that as a benchmark to compare pricing in another market is helpful. Um, I wouldn't say that that at least not in my mind, that's not the only driver. I think all these other things that you just talked about, Ryan, are very important. But I think that that's, that's high up there. If we can't get an asset that we think is reasonably priced, doesn't matter how much demand, the great location, the amenities, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of the brass tacks of the numbers, right? Yeah, well, I'm actually, this isn't something that we've ever talked about. But I think something that is worth considering for the two of us is, obviously, the vast majority of our portfolio now is in Atlantic City. And it's obviously a very seasonal market. Um, I could see some value to taking the approach of what's what would be a nice complement to a summer seasonal heavy portfolio. Maybe something that's a little bit more winter focused or a little bit more yeah. um, that's something that sustains a little bit more year round demand. Um, so that might that alone might be enough reason for us to say, hey, like we we know we can get a ten percent return on given at any given asset in Atlantic City, we might only be at eight or nine in one of these other markets. But if the distribution of that eight or 9% is weighted more heavily toward the winter or more heavily towards spring and fall, um, as opposed to being so concentrated in the summer, then just from a lifestyle perspective and kind of a stability of cash flows perspective from a business standpoint, there's a lot of value to that too. I feel like there's a way this conversation goes where like at, we, we say everything we've just said and then like we have an episode in a couple months or whatever where it's like an update on this conversation. It's like, yep, we're doing senior living, short-term rentals <laughs> in like Western Texas. It's great. <laughs> Amazing market. No, but yeah, I think that's a great point. I think um, like having that opposite seasonality would be interesting. Um, uh, so I, I think another extension of that, which I we alluded to just now is you know, for us, that that cost is not a dollar conversation alone. It's also a conversation about our time and our effort. So, you know, is it worth it for us um, to operate a single STR somewhere that is completely opposite of where our current STRs are, even if it makes great returns, even if it has, you know, great... Um, great numbers and, you know, meets all the check boxes. Is it really worth it for us? Because now we have to kind of build an infrastructure in that one area. And I think, I think if we're, if, if all those things are great, I could imagine we're always saying, okay, great. Well, you know, we'll start with one, but the expectations that we want to get 10 or 20, but I don't think that we're at a point right now where it would be okay for us to say, we're going to get one and that's it. You know, we don't have any plans to do anymore. It's just not worth our, it's not worth our time, even if it's a great return on money. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo that 100%. I think the I have four different uh, variables to consider uh, that I wanted to add to this conversation because I think it's relevant to the decision-making process, um, both for us and any other investors looking at new short-term rental markets. Um, the one was 
the first one I had written down was scale, which you just touched on. Second one was distance, which you talked about. Um, so, you know, how far is it from our home base? Mm-hmm. Um, the third I have is accessibility, um, which ties into distance a little bit. But, um, you know, we've, we've only really discussed short-term rental markets in the context of things within like two and a half to three hours at most from, and that's driving distance from northern New Jersey, New York City. But um, I think another another potential draw is if we were to expand outside of this immediate geographic area and look somewhere that's a, a flight away, uh, there's a big difference between a place that is remote and an hour and a half drive from the nearest airport um, because a quick trip there suddenly goes from being a two hour, one and a half hour flight and 15 minute drive to a one hour flight, one and a half hour flight and an hour and a half drive each way to and from the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know, I, like I know people who uh, maybe not short term rentals as much, but I know a lot of people who have purchased investment properties in specific cities because it was something as simple as there being a lot of very easy, readily available direct flights from totally. an airport in the New York yep. City area to um, whatever their destination market Yeah, that's was. a great point. Um, and, if, and if you're trying to pair your STR investment with um, some personal use, then that's even more valuable because if you're trying to you know, take your family down there or go there alone with friends, significant other, um, you're obviously going to be much more inclined to use it if it's easy to get to. Well, I think that kind of dovetails as well with the location versus asset demand. If you're looking at a place that's really inaccessible, it's probably not the location that's the draw because if the location was the draw, it'd probably be more accessible as in they probably would have built at some point infrastructure would have been built to accommodate the ability of people to get there. I don't think that's always true, but I, I, I just, I think there's a lot of like national park type stuff, like stuff in, in Maine, um, near Acadia or like in the great smoky mountains or in there, are, I think there are certainly exceptions to that. I think a lot of ski towns are also, yeah. um, I'm thinking like Jackson hole. It's, is an airport, you know, like, like there, there are ways to get into these places. Like I, I, I you know, I, I agree. Like if you want to go to, yeah, a national park, I mean, they're not like airports and national parks. I would say there are airports near national parks. I mean, Acadia is like, I guess you'd fly into somewhere in Maine. I don't know, Boston, I guess, but you know, it's pretty inaccessible. Yeah. I, I mean, I think my point is like, I, I, I think people make, um, I'm certainly not the person to, ask about this because I don't really ski and I've never skied or snowboarded out West. Um, but I know there are, there are, uh, there's a plethora of mountains in Colorado, for example, that have great skiing. But I think oftentimes people go to one mountain in particular or a series of mountains, um, yeah. because of their proximity to Denver, Denver airport or yeah. Vail or wherever you would fly into, as opposed to, um, a, a mountain that is equal or even superior skiing, but is, an additional two hour drive. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so this is a, there's another thing that I have written down. I don't know exactly how to, how to classify this, but I wrote, I wrote down personnel. Um, so I think for us, like having some, some infrastructure to speak of, um, at least in, in some markets in New Jersey, I, I think part of the draw to maybe not entire, I, I guess taking a step back, part of our, um, Part of what we are evaluating right now for our own um, future investment opportunities is uh, a few different markets within New Jersey that are not where we are, where we currently operate in North Jersey and where we currently operate in Atlantic City. But 
they are close enough to those markets that it's pretty likely that we could we could use some of our existing partners and vendors to service those Airbnbs as well. Mm-hmm. And we have, yeah. I think to the extent that that's possible, um, that's certainly worth considering. Um, I think part of the reason we're considering this is that some of these other markets are very different in nature in the sense that they are not, they wouldn't necessarily be beach towns. Um, even though they might be an hour away from the beach, they're not beach towns. Um, they might be a little bit more attractive um, at in different seasons than what Atlantic City would be. Yeah, and I, I think that your point is not one to be understated because as operators of Airbnbs, I've become acutely aware of how important it is to have the right personnel. We both have become acutely aware of how important it is to have the right people that are servicing them. And that ranges from property managers to cleaners to handymen, plumbers, electricians, whatever. Um, we, I think part of our secret sauce in Atlantic City is that because we've been operating there, A, for a while, and B, at a bigger scale, we now have a roster of people that um, at least we, we know what to expect from them. Some are great, maybe some are less great. Um, but rebuilding that in a different municipality, I think, is or an area is tough. I mean, what would come to my mind is almost finding like uh, the golden goose, right? Like finding one person, maybe a manager, maybe a company, maybe whatever that already has all these connections, just saying like, Hey, let me just kind of piggyback on those connections. And that's tough, you know, because some of the markets I think that we're looking at are not necessarily really mature SDR markets like AC is to some extent. So, you know, building that infrastructure from the ground up, trying to find the right people, you know, some of these more remote areas, maybe there just aren't, you know, that many skilled electricians that live in this town. And, you know, maybe they live half an hour away or an hour and away. Um, you know, maybe the nearest Home Depot is an hour away. I mean, that impacts a lot the practicalities of, you know, doing renovations there or maybe operating it there. So um, I think that's that's a pretty significant point. Yeah. Um, I think it also serves as a good segue into a little bit more of the operation side. Um, so I, I have a few things written down, a, a few like subheadings, I guess, of um, some of the main operating concerns. Um, for the purposes of our model, that tends to be broken down into construction-related uh, personnel and then operations-related personnel um, for once, a, once the property is online. Um, We've done a number of episodes on construction and managing the constru- construction process, but suffice it to say, the there is a significant hurdle to, as John just alluded to, finding at least competent enough, responsive enough, trustworthy enough individuals to carry out each aspect of a renovation. Um, and the bigger project you're taking on, the more the more different types of subcontractors, vendors, you're going to need to make the project a success. Mm -hmm. And the process, the entire process is quite sequential. So even having one or two bad apples will spoil the bunch because until your framer is done, your plumber, electrician, and HVAC contractor can't get started on their work. So if you have a bad plumber, that's going to hold up those guys, which is going to hold up every single phase thereafter of the project. Um, so there's certainly a big hurdle to that. And for that reason, I think, I don't know if this has been intentional or not, but I think to the extent that you and I have been looking at opportunities in other markets, 
we haven't really been looking at major renovations like what we're doing in Atlantic City. That's true. Yeah, I think I think the the idea of building an infrastructure to enable us to do renovations is daunting. I think what we would do is, if we were entering a market, we would have to almost buy a couple of turnkey ready type properties, build up at least our management kind of operational on the ground infrastructure to be comfortable thinking like, let's kind of branch out a little bit because there is some blending, right? You know, you find like a handyman and then maybe the handyman is a little bit more than a handyman. Maybe he can do some framing. Maybe he knows a plumber, maybe he knows electrician kind of, you know, expand it that way. But yeah, the idea of doing a major renovation in somewhere two hours from here in outstate New York is like, oh. I thought you just threw me a wink after you said a little bit more than a handyman. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I never thought of the word handyman in that way, um, but, which maybe is not how you were thinking of it either. But <laughs> um, handsy man, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's a great point. I think the maybe the plan B to that is if we were to find something that was in a market, made a lot of sense, was the right kind of asset, uh, just needed maybe a little more work than we really wanted to do. Um, I think at this stage of the game, I'd be much more inclined to try to go through a proper general contractor in this new market. Um, and, you know, obviously price dependent and sort of quality dependent. And after checking referrals and whatnot, um, after going through all of these renovations on our own, I've realized what goes into them. And the idea of just handing the keys off to someone else to say, here's the project, here's what we expect. Um, here's what we want it to look like, get us there. Um, that certainly has some appeal, even yeah. if it, even if it carries with it a little bit of cost. Yeah, it does have appeal. Although my mind immediately goes to, well, how, you know, how do we vet to make sure that they're that, you know, person? I think we've both been in situations. I think you more so than me have been in situations. Where we have a bad general contractor who just, um, you know, well, we don't have to go into that, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I think, I think this whole conversation is a long way of saying that our approach to, entering a new SDR market is, I think, very thoughtful and purposeful, perhaps in a way that we were not in Atlantic City. Um, and, um, you know, I, my, my, my feeling is kind of like, after putting in this effort and thought, um, wherever we go, I want to kind of go in a serious way. You know, I yeah. think that that's, I think, when, I, I think, you know, one of the cool things about Atlantic City is that you know, the, the way I always describe it is kind of that arbitrage opportunity almost. Being a lot of location demand, base demand, but at the same time, the assets themselves are priced wrongly, I guess, relative to A, their usage, and B, just other assets that are kind of in the same location um, or more or less the same location. So like finding something like that would be would be cool. You know, it'd be nice. I, I don't know if another way to say that is like what we're looking for kind of economically depressed areas near less economically depressed areas or near areas that have, you know, tourism appeal or something like that. But, you know, it's kind of, um, it's kind of just figuring out other ways to say that same thing, you know, where assets are, are mispriced, but there's enough demand to that location where you could really, um, it kind of makes your effort worthwhile financially. Yeah, one one pattern that I've noticed in a lot of the places that we've been looking at recently in markets outside of Atlantic City, um, but I think it's a pattern that also holds true for Atlantic City, is that um, what we're looking for as STR operators are cool assets. We're looking for amenities. We're looking for you know something that looks yeah. um, sort of like photogenic. Um, and I think in in 
there are a lot of markets where ordinarily the buyer for that type of asset mm -hmm. is someone who's looking for a primary residence. And I think in a lot of the areas where we're looking, the the market for those primary home or you know personal mm -hmm. residence home buyers that was the worst way to describe that type of person. But the that subset of buyers is not um, it's that, like that's not a deep pool in a lot of these markets we're looking at. Um, but that doesn't necessarily right. negate their value as short-term rentals. It just means that. Yeah, you know, that that that's sort of like where the opportunity lies because I think with a lot of the places that we like, I, I probably sent you five or six listings the other day um, that I think were sort of the like a nice match between strong location-based demand and solid asset-based demand, and I think of all of those, if they were located maybe in like a different zip code or if they were located like a few miles in one direction that was in a more prestigious town. Um, yeah. those, those would not be still listed on the market or they would be priced quite a bit higher. Um, but because of where they were and because buyers who would otherwise be looking for that type of property are not looking for that type of property in that specific area. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities out there for us to come in and buy those things. Right. I think another way of saying it is that primary home owners drive prices up, right? So, you know, if you're looking at a place where it's just not appealing to someone to live there full time, or maybe even, you know, as a vacation home, um, that's going to have a negative, you know, that that's going to be better for us because prices are going to be lower. Yeah. And I think a lot of the places that we, a lot of the listings that we saw, it was probably a case where somebody bought the property, renovated it right. years ago, over-improved it for mm -hmm. the area, but was willing to justify it because right. they themselves were living there. Right. Now but they're now they're struggling with what the, right. what the exit was. Um, well, for us, this episode is the beginning of a conversation that we're going to have probably over the next couple of weeks or months. Um, but that's one of our goals of this year is trying to expand to new markets um, in whatever way we can. And so I'm excited about where the fruits of that will come. Um and we'll do a follow-up episode, I'm sure, in a couple months where we've maybe done some of this actual work, looking at actual places and found some places where we want to explore. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's been a fruitful discussion. Yeah, I think at the very least, this was good therapy for the two of us <laughs> to get some of our thoughts together yeah. and, and come up with a, a better approach going forward. Uh, as always, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you are able to like uh, or follow or subscribe to us via whatever platform you're listening, that's much appreciated because we're able to see what people like uh, and make more of that content. If you'd like to reach out to us, uh, Ryan or I, we are always very happy to chat. Um, it seems like every every week people reach out and ask questions and want to talk about stuff, and that's really cool. Um, my email address is the best way to reach me. It's john, J-O-H-N, at libertyhudson.com. And I'm Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at LibertyHudson.com. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to V, who I know is a listener of the, a listener of the show, who um, sent us a deal that we are actually now under contract on. So V, thank you very much. Hope to meet you in person someday. Yeah, thank you. And congrats on your wedding. Absolutely. Um, and if you listen to this like 20 years later, then remember the good times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, until next time, uh, thank you guys for listening and we'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at brickxbrickrealestate.com. 
for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.